The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. The American Bar Association provides access to career-changing and life-changing opportunities. Invest in your growth, deepen your knowledge, and join us in our pursuit of making a positive impact for all. The American Bar Association. Well, it was a bittersweet moment, of course, because um, so many of the diaries and accounts from that day talk about you know, wanting to feel some sense of jubilation, but no, you know, the, the people in your own family who'd sacrificed themselves for that conflict, uh, that there'd been a terrible cost. That was Richard Overy discussing the events of VE Day. He remembers running to school barefooted in Jarrow in the winter in the 1920s and 30s, and now he's running the same streets of Jarrow as a 93-year-old in marathons. And that was Steve Humphreys, talking about a remarkable member of the Second World War generation. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good newsagents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our first podcast of May 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. This week, we reach the 70th anniversary of VE Day, when millions of people in Europe celebrated Allied victory over Nazi Germany. Although, of course, the war against Japan still had a few months to run. To mark this anniversary, we've made this episode a Second World War special. Our first interview is with Professor Richard Overy, one of Britain's leading experts on the conflict and the editor of the new Oxford Illustrated History of World War II. He spoke to our website editor, Emma McFarnan, about the events of VE Day and the struggles to return Britain to a sense of normality afterwards. I suppose, first of all, maybe a good way to start out ahead of the anniversary would be to take us right back to the events leading up to VE Day on the 8th of May, 1945. Um, well, the end of the war was actually a, a very messy occasion. It wasn't a single day. Um, and the, the first major surrender had come in northern Italy on May the 2nd. Uh, so that part of the war was already finished. Uh, Montgomery then took more German surrenders in north Germany. So that part of the, of the war was finished uh, again much earlier. Um, it, it finally... Uh, the German High Command agreed to meet Eisenhower and to, and to sign uh, a surrender document, which they signed early in the morning on May the 7th. Um, uh, uh, and by that stage, uh, the fighting had more or less petered out in much of the west of Europe. But the fighting carried on, in fact, in parts of Eastern and Central Europe, well beyond VED, VE Day, May the 8th. So that, so that, that seeing... A single day as the end of the war is slightly misleading. News had come through on May the 7th um, that the Germans had signed a surrender. In fact, it had come from the Germans themselves. A broadcast had been picked up 
from the Romanian German government, the so-called Dönitz government. Um, and and so by the evening of the summons, people in, in the UK knew that the war was over. They were out already, flags, waving flags, uh, walking down the streets in London celebrating and so on. Um, uh, and so there was a long period of suspense because there was no official announcement until... Churchill, who'd originally agreed that they wouldn't announce anything until May the 9th, when the second surrender had taken place in Berlin to satisfy the Soviets, uh, finally decided there was no point in, in delaying it any longer. And so on the afternoon of May the 8th, finally announced it. But uh, he had to make his way to uh, the House of Commons through throngs of people who were already celebrating, because they already knew that it was, uh, was VE Day. So, you know, if you were lucky and you heard the news, you'd be celebrating from the afternoon of May the 7th through to the morning of May the 9th. So to what extent was the war really over at that point then, would you say? I think for the British people, uh, the war really was over because they did see their chief war as the war against Germany. Once it really was the war, Germany was their chief enemy. Uh, that's what had taken them into war in the first place. Hitler was the, they, they saw Hitler as the real demon. Um, and I think for a lot of British people, victory in Europe meant that they took their eye off the war in the Pacific. They'd always been less engaged with the war in the Pacific. Uh, and although that war had to go on being fought, and it was fought also by British and British Commonwealth forces, uh, the end of the war in the Pacific is really the end of the American war, as much as, as the end of the, of the British war. And I think that for that reason, May the 8th has always had much greater resonance in Britain than it has, for example, in America. What would you say were the factors that led to Germany's ultimate defeat? Well, historians argue a lot about, you know, why did Germany lose? Of course, in the end, Germany lost simply because Germany was trying to fight the Soviet Union, the British Commonwealth and the United States uh, altogether. And once they'd managed to mobilise their resources um, and organise their fighting forces so that they were more efficient on the battlefield. Uh, Germany was almost certain to, to, to lose that conflict. Um, what we need to remind ourselves, I think, is that the conflict went on for much longer than people had ever imagined, given the forces that were opposed to, to Germany. Uh, the assumption was that once Britain and the United States invaded France, um, the Third Reich would really uh, crumple up. You know, they really did expect victory in August or September 1944. Um, but the Germans continued to fight very effectively. They continued to mobilise new um, technology. They were still able to produce, despite the bombing, very large quantities of material. Uh, wearing the Germans down to the point where they just could not fight any longer uh, was always going to be a very long, drawn-out conflict. And do you think there would have been any way that it could have ended sooner than it did, given what you've just said? <laughs> well, people like to think that there might have been a way. Um, one way, of course, would have been to have reached a separate agreement with the Germans and say, you know, our common enemy is Soviet Russia. You know, we'll side with you and fight the Russians. And many Germans hoped that would happen. Many Germans, even in, even in, in May 1945, when they were about to surrender, some of the German high command still thought there was a possibility that the British and Americans would finally see sense and join forces with the Germans to, to keep the Russians at, at bay. Um, but, that, you know, that didn't happen. Uh, British and Americans knew that to defeat Germany comprehensively, the Grand Alliance had to stay together. Um, some people have argued maybe if you know, uh, the bombing had been even more severe, Germany might have collapsed at a sooner date. I, I'm not convinced of, of that. The bombing reached an extraordinary crescendo at the end of 1944. Um, but in fact, it was still necessary to defeat the German armed forces on the ground. And, and, and that was, again, a rather slow process. The death of Hitler? Well, yes, clearly the death of Hitler would have changed the situation. Um, but, you know, we're, we're talking uh, hypotheses here. We're not, not talking the facts. Of course. And what did it mean for Britain's sort of waking up, like you said, I know it wasn't all about this one day, but it's been this day of jubilation. Obviously, it's sort of bittersweet for many people. What did it? What did it mean? What did the aftermath of VE Day mean for Britain? Mm. Well, it was a bittersweet moment, of course, because um, so many of the diaries and accounts from that day talk about you know, wanting to feel some sense of jubilation, but no, you know, 
the, the people in your own family who sacrificed themselves for that conflict, uh, that there'd been a terrible cost. Um, uh, and indeed, you know, what was going to happen in Europe? Europe was a mess, what was going to happen? So uh, uh, people shifted, I think, a lot between these two um, different sets of emotions. Uh, swept up, of course, with the um, uh, you know with the moment. Um, but even then, you, you have accounts of people who stood quietly just watching the crowds and not, not taking part. So yes, a real ambivalence. You know, the end of a war is not like the end of a football match. Um, it, it, it's it was something which which made people to re reflect really on the nature of what they'd gone through. And do you think? You could argue that the Cold War was starting at that point. Well, there's a lot of argument about when did the Cold War start. Uh, I have no doubt that it uh, was already in place in 1944 and 45. Um, and it's quite interesting that, that, in fact, the events surrounding the end of the war itself, the German surrender, uh, highlighted some of the uh, well of distrust which existed now between the, the, the Allies. Um, when... The Germans surrendered to Eisenhower in France uh, early in the morning, May the 7th. The Soviets were very anxious in that, 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 that a separate peace had not been made. Um, uh, and that, you know, that this would then be the opportunity for the Germans and the Americans and the British to fight against the Soviet Union. So, so deep was their level of distrust that they, that, that they were not certain that that was something that the Americans and British were thinking about. Uh, the same thing was true in the surrender in, in, in Italy. Uh, also because um, once the surrender had come into force, the British and the Americans failed to uh, occupy uh, the town where the German government was based, the Dernitz government based in northern Germany, a town called Flensburg. Uh, they just let it exist there for two weeks, pretending it was the German government. And the Soviets again thought to themselves, well, the only reason the British and Americans can be doing that is because they're hoping to stitch up some kind of deal with, uh, with the Germans. So even the circumstances surrounding the surrender in its immediate aftermath highlighted the gulf, I think, that separated these, these two sides. For Britain, was it the end of imperial... Britain? That's a very good question, because, of course, it was the end of Imperial Britain. Um, Britain's empire collapsed in the course of the next 15, 10 or 15 years, and the jewel of the empire, India, um, uh, was independent two years later. Um, uh, I think that for a lot of British people, uh, the empire had been important because they provided soldiers and so on. Uh, the, the, the march pass organised later on through London to celebrate the, the, the victory, uh, including Australian and New Zealand troops and so on and so on. Um, but I think for many British people it was seen as a, as a British victory um, and that somehow or other what mattered really was, was Britain's future in, in Europe. And I think that's one of the reasons why there was so little popular protest or anxiety about the loss of empire when it happened two years later and then ten years later and so on. Everybody assumes that the British public was you know, wholeheartedly imperial um, and therefore the loss of empire would be something difficult to bear. But I think that, that maybe it was seen as very much a British victory. And I'm right in thinking that this sort of era of austerity, austerity sorry, was, um, was by no means over. Rationing, mm. Am I right thinking rationing actually mm. got was yeah. after in the aftermath. Yeah. I mean, one of the problems about the aftermath of the war, of course, was that Britain had um, spent a huge amount, um, most of its overseas assets. Um, it, it had been almost overcommitted, really, to its to its war effort. And when that war came to an end, you had to try and restore some kind of e economic normality. But that was very difficult. That meant um, exporting like mad. Otherwise, mm -hmm. the British economy was going to collapse. Um, so all kinds of controls uh, came into place and, in fact, rationing increased in intensity in some products after 1945. And indeed, uh, rationing was continued in Britain longer than it was, for example, in, in Germany, well into the 1950s. And, uh, so again, I think for many people, they imagined, I think, that when May the 8th came, you know, uh, all the austerity would disappear, the rationing would disappear. You know, they'd put up for years um, with a relatively poor diet um, and no, no consumer goods in the shops. Um, and yet they had you know, more years of, of, um, of economic scarcity, more years of, of rationing. 
Um, deeply disillusioning, I think, for many British people in the late 1940s. Going forward to your new book, I understand you've edited the um, Oxford Illustrated History of World War II. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Um, well, it's quite a challenge uh, covering the Second World War now because uh, we know so much about it. There's so much good history written about this that actually putting it all into into one volume uh, is quite a challenge. I think uh, one of the things about this book, of course, is that it's illustrated. And the idea uh, behind the book really was to find the range of illustrations, uh, photographs, cartoons, posters, which were unusual, which were not the ones you see in every book on the Second World War. And I think we've achieved that. Mm. Uh, so that um, you, you, you get some quite surprising images, I think, um, uh, of the war period. Uh, so that there is a purpose for it being illustrated, as the, the pictures tell a story as well as the um, as well as the text. But I think, as far as the text was concerned, it was important to f- try and find some some of the perspectives that historians are now dealing with on the Second World War, which are, are not widely known. Um, and um, I mean, I might pick up say three in particular. I think one is one is that. In so many Western accounts of the Second World War, uh, what the Italians of the Japanese did always takes second place. I mean, I think certainly in Britain, the tendency to see this as a conflict between Germany and Britain. Um, what this book does is to give two very long chapters, two of the longest chapters in the book, to uh, what we call the Japanese Wars and the Italian Wars. So starting with Manchuria in 1931 or Ethiopia in 1935. And that allows us to see the conflict really as a 10... 12-year conflict, it was not just as a, as a, a, a war between 39 and 45. And it also reminds us that the war really was global in scale. Um, so that, that there's a war in the Mediterranean, there's a war in Asia, there's a war in the Pacific, and they merged together eventually in the course of the conflict, but uh, they all have different openings from the conventional European opening. Um, and the third thing we wanted to do with this book was to emphasise that there are different kinds of war being fought uh, during this period. There's the the standard war between states, where they mobilise huge military and economic resources. Only states can do that. Uh, But throughout the war period, indeed before and afterwards, there are civil wars, there are insurgencies, there are civilians Mm. who have armed themselves and who are fighting for their own liberation, Mm. either against occupation or against imperial powers. Um, in other words, it's a, it's a war which is curiously at one level old-fashioned, old-fashioned military conflict like the First World War, but on the other hand, very modern. It's a it's a, a war for you know democratic fulfilment on the part of people who've uh, been politically oppressed for a long period of time. And I think highlighting the fact that you know you've got this war from below as well as the conventional war from above is, I think, one of the most important things that historians have come to recognise now about the period of the Second World War. And with that passing of time, like you said, it allows us to it allows us to look at the war differently and perceive it and ex- maybe explain it differently as well. How how much has that perception changed? Do you think in recent years? Well, I'd like to think it was changing quite a lot because there's a lot of very good new history written about the Second World War. But I think really the problem is that all the major competent states. Uh, very quickly developed their own myths or ideas about the war uh, and have been very reluctant to to shed those. Mm. Um, uh, in in the British case, um, there are all kinds of things which fit into the British myth. For example, forgetting the empire and the world of the Commonwealth, Britain alone. Britain is never alone in the Second World War. Uh, but that's a central part of our self-perception mm. of, of, the British, um, of the British war effort. Um, who began the bombing? Well, the Germans did in the Blitz, but of course they didn't because the RAF had been bombing Germany for four or five months before that, regularly every night. Um, the Blitz is in some sense a response to what it is that the British have been, been doing. Um, and I, I think the same is true for other countries too. Uh, um, perhaps the most acute case is Germany, where... Uh, attitudes to the Second World War are, are completely politically divided. There are, there are many Germans 
who want to say it was our fault. You know, we were awful. We did terrible things, and there's nothing. You know, what can we do to atone for them? And the other Germans say, no, Germans are victims like everybody else. Victims of dictatorship. Victims of the bombing. Victims of, and so on and so on. Uh, so you have two different traditions there, and you would think with the passage of time that these things would pass, but but they they haven't. They're remarkably enduring. Once people have have identified their you know their public view of what the war represented, actually undermining it or trying to get people to think differently about it. It's a much more difficult task than one would expect. And what do you think are the most problematic myths that surround? You mentioned the bombing, the blitz. Mm. I mean, are there any other ones that particularly spring to mind? Um, well, I think of the British war effort. Let's take an example, El Alamein. Um, uh, I've just been uh, reviewing a book briefly, a children's book briefly about the war, um, in which Al Alamein is classically presented as this um, uh, conflict between Romney and Montgomery. You know, it's, it's presented in a sense as a kind of you know, wartime cricket match. Um, because the British will persistently refuse to accept that the Italians were capable of fighting, or indeed that there were twice as many Italians in, in the Battle of El Alamein as there were Germans. And then in fact the Germans left the site of El Alamein, leaving the Italians in the front line fighting the British. Uh, now the, I think the British public has no interest in re, rewriting uh, Alamein. But Italian historians, um, like the, the Italian historian in the uh, Oxford Illustrated History, do have an interest just in reminding people that they were there and that they were fighting, that they took exceptionally high casualties and so on. Um, now, the, you know, we might think this is, these are details, but they're, they're not details. They're really, you know, it, it, it suits the British to think of it that way. Um, it, it doesn't suit them particularly to think that the Italians were capable of fighting. Looking forward, how do you imagine the perceptions might change again? In, in the future? Well, I think one of the one of the big growth areas historically at the moment is what's called the history of emotions. And for a long time, historians assumed that it was quite hard to to construct a history of emotions. That, you know, emotions are intangible things, and and, uh, uh, and what kind of evidence can you use to to, to demonstrate a, a history of emotions in inverted commas? But actually, when it's applied to war, I think this is going to be an extremely fruitful area because I think the one thing people need to be reminded of with the war is that war does terrible things to all the individuals involved in it. I mean, you know, we take that for granted, of course. The deeply traumatic experiences for civilians and for soldiers. Um, uh, awful thing. I eyewitnessed to awful things. Um, and yet, somehow or other, a veil is always drawn over that. You just assume that you know the people, you know, bucked up. You know, the, you know they will see it through. Um, uh, you know, typical ideas of the British Blitz, for example, where you know we can take it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and I think historians are very are going to very soon be able to deconstruct that and just show what kind of emotional damage, psychological damage war does. And I, uh, it's evident from all the conflicts we see around us today. Mm. We're always talking about how awful it is for you know children in Syria and so on and so on. We've got to project that back and remind ourselves that the, 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 the World War was not just damaging to the soldiers who were killed or the civilians who were bombed, um, but, but it's damaging in an emotional, psychological sense to broad swathes of the population. And we need to understand how that damage happens and with what results. And what do you think have been the biggest long-term consequences of the war, the knock-on effects? Well, there are many, many consequences. Um, the, the real problem, of course, is when, when do those consequences kind of peter out and you start you know, building a new world? I, I, I suppose if I have to isolate one... Well, two consequences. I mean, the first is that it actually it did at last bring Europe to its senses. Mm. Um, although there were lots of fears after the war that there'd be a third world war in no time at all. We haven't had a third world war. And European states collaborate together much more fully than they've ever done. Um, so that it, in a sense, drew a line under what Europe had been, been doing for four or five hundred years. And I think that was a very important uh, aspect. I think the other really important consequence, of course, is that the, the war in its outcome shaped modern Asia. And modern Asia is is increasingly the driving force now of the world system. Um, the role of China, the role of India, uh, the rise of tiger economies and so on. 
Um, eyes are turned much more now towards Shanghai and Singapore than they are to the you know, traditional Western capitals. Um, and and that, that shift, geopolitical shift, is really uh, brought about as a result of the war and its immediate aftermath. Um, these were areas that were liberated from uh, the group of Europe or, in China's case, the group of Japan, um, and were able to mould their own political future. And you mentioned the Third World War there. Um, do you think there would be a Third World War? Well, I'm often asked that question. <laughs> I'm sure you uh, are. <laughs> um, and occasionally the pessimist in me says I should say yes. Um, <laughs> but the problem is that the Syrians are just hopeless at predicting what's, what's going to happen. And you could have asked an intelligent historian in 1900, you know, what's going to happen in the 20th century? Is it going to be more peaceful? And he would probably have said yes. Mm. Um, if you'd said to him, well, do you know in 15 years' time there's going to be a mass slaughter uh, followed by another one 30 years' time and the genocide of the Jews? And, and he, he would have looked as, you, as if he were mad. Right? Um, and I think in the 21st century, you know, uh, 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 we're hostage to, you know, our desire for, you know, good things to happen. But uh, as an historian, I'm aware that the 21st century could well be uh, as difficult a history as the 20th. That was Professor Richard Overy of the University of Exeter. The new Oxford Illustrated History of World War II is out now in the UK and will be published in early June in the US. In both cases, it's by Oxford University Press. Before our next interview, here's a reminder that tickets are now on sale for our two history weekends this autumn. The events are taking place at Malmesbury, Wiltshire from the 15th to the 18th of October and in York from the 25th to 27th of September. Full details are now available at historyweekend.com and BBC History magazine subscribers can purchase tickets now. Tickets will then go on general release from next Monday. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. Now, starting tomorrow, the 8th of May, on BBC Two, is a major new series called Britain's Greatest Generation, which tells the story of the Second World War through a series of interviews with surviving British war veterans, many of whom are now in their 90s or even older. Here's a teaser clip. This is the epic story of a remarkable generation of British men and women. For my arm muscles, I do this 25 times. Born in the early decades of the 20th century, they have survived some of the greatest upheavals of the modern era. They grew up in the shadow of the First World War, lived through the Great Depression, fought in World War II, and help create the modern world we take for granted today. Now in their 90s and 100s, we pay tribute to this generation and acknowledge the debt we owe them, because thanks to them, Britain, for all its faults, is a free, tolerant and democratic nation. Without their courage and sacrifice, it could have been a very different story. So proud of you for what you did in the war. In this four-part series, we'll find out how this generation was shaped by their childhood experiences. I was very fond of reading anything, mainly poetry, and I went through life sort of looking for any adventure I could. Whoever you are, whatever your condition, there's only one person in charge of your life, and that is you. We'll follow them into the Second World War, through the Battle of Britain and the Blitz. Without winning this war, we'd have no chance of living a better life. 
Therefore, this war had to be won. Blimey, I thought they'd got you. Who, me? Nah, I had me fingers crossed. We'll find out how they survived, from the beaches of Normandy to the horrors of the Japanese prison camps and beyond. I thought, well, whatever happens, get through today. Don't think of anything else. Get through today. All the time, freedom is at risk, then you've got to really defend it, because once that goes, you may never get it back. And we'll look back at their lives in peacetime and ask what life has taught them. As I'm here, I have to do something. And that something is working for peace on Earth. There is not a single thing that doesn't start, develop, die. Plants, even mountains. This is the inspirational story of Britain's greatest generation. The series producer is oral historian Steve Humphreys, who has also written an article on this generation for our May edition. He popped into our studio last week to talk about his experiences of interviewing the veterans, some of whom are the last British survivors of major events in the conflict. I began by asking him how the series came about in the first place. I got the idea because it struck me that we're down to almost the last survivors of the veterans of World War II. Uh, a lot of them now are in their mid-90s or hundreds, and very sadly we're losing them fast. And it was very important to me to try and record their memories on film. Um, so that was the inspiration for the project, to do it before it was too late. And with a big anniversary coming up, the 70th uh, anniversary of the end of the war, uh, it, the moment seemed to be right to do that. One of the, the biggest logistical challenges must have been actually finding these veterans and tracking them down. How did you go about doing that? Well, we had a massive outreach project which has gone on for the last two years. We think we've spoken to between a thousand and one and a half thousand veterans from World War Two. Uh, we put pieces in local newspapers, on, on local radio. We got in touch with all the old people's organisations, the Royal British Legion, who have all been enormously helpful. And we had a fantastic response. And it was very difficult to make the selection of who we would film. In the end, we filmed around 35 people. Uh, um, but it was really tough to make that choice and we chose them on the basis of the importance of their story and the power of their storytelling. You mentioned before that you, you kind of were in touch with between 1,000 and 1,500 veterans. Do, you, do we know how many veterans are left alive in, in Britain nowadays? I don't think we do, actually. But we know we're down to last survivors of certain events, like uh, Johnny Johnson is the last survivor of the Downbuster raid in Britain. We also interviewed somebody who's far less well-known, Betty Evans, who we think is one of the last surviving D-Day nurses who went behind the troops on the first days after D-Day. It's an extraordinary story, one of those that moved me the most. I didn't know that going out on boats after the troops were all the nurses. They were photographed and filmed. Uh, and one of the great things about the series, we managed to find photographs and archive of Betty Evans with all the rest of the nurses doing their work, tending to, to the wounded just amazing to see that and that what I feel is really important about the series is that we try and tell some untold stories I've never seen that story before I actually filmed the last surviving nurses of the first world war 20 odd years ago and made a film called the roses of no man's land which is what they were called uh, similarly there are amazing women who did that on d-day who've got really not very much recognition for it and so by, by doing these videos, you and the rest of your team are, are actually providing a, a resource for historians of the future because otherwise these stories might have been lost. That's right. It's really important to me to do that. 
uh, going back to the First World War, we filmed the last hundred survivors of, of World War One, and we discovered Harry Patch in an old people's home in Glastonbury when he was a hundred. He went on to live to be a hundred and eleven. I think spurred on by the attention that he'd got from television and radio after that. So yeah, it, it is really important that we create an archive. And at the moment, I'm trying to create a World War Two archive of full life stories that are transcribed. And I think, obviously, lots of programmes have been made on World War Two. Some people might say too many. What we've done, which I think is different and unique in ours, is that we've taken a life story approach to these veterans. Uh, we've looked at them from their childhood to youth to service in the war to middle age and old age and then very old age to find out what is unique about this generation and record their stories forever. I mean, that's an interesting question. So from speaking to all these people and the rest of your team interviewing these people, did you come to some conclusions about were there commonalities between them that kind of set them apart from other generations in Britain? I think they had, on the whole, growing up uh, in the shadow of the First World War and the Great Depression, on the whole, quite a tough upbringing, particularly if you were working class. It was sink or swim, uh, survival of the fittest. But also, interestingly, upper class children had it tough. There was no heating allowed on in the big country houses. You had to spend uh, a lot of time outdoors. You had to prove yourself in, in terms of physical courage and bravery sort of tributes that were very helpful in a war situation, not that anybody wants to go to war. But there were distinctive uh, features of that generation. I think a very strong sense of civic and public duty, strong patriotism, which is why so many volunteered before they were conscripted in World War Two. So there are some shared values amongst them, which were expressed after the war very strongly in the creation of the NHS and the welfare state. A lot of them had experienced poverty and inequality before the, the war and they didn't want to return to that after the war. It's quite common for these veterans to find it emotional to talk about their experiences even though they were, you know, 70 years ago if not yeah. more. Lots of them uh, got emotional. I think there's something confessional about asking uh, somebody to tell their story on camera, particularly if they're a veteran. And what you find is families are too nervous to ask the difficult questions. It's something that you can do if you're a stranger coming from outside and if you've got a camera with you. So I ask, and I think it's my role to ask, the questions that other people don't dare to. Because I think it's important as a matter of historical record and actually for the people themselves, the veterans, they sometimes welcome it and they do get emotional about it because they haven't had the opportunity to tell that story in full before. And did you get any veterans who really didn't want to be interviewed when you approached them or when you did interview them were really unwilling to answer any particular questions? No. Generally, people who didn't want to talk about it didn't come forward to offer their story. But nobody in all the interviews I've done has said... I won't or can't answer that question. I think they really want to lay it down. They, they want to tell the truth as a matter of record. Uh, and I think there's something about very old age which makes people want to tell the truth. They don't mind breaking taboos. They just want to get it out there. They want, they want to tell it how it was before they go. So do you find that the things that these veterans are telling you are quite different from interviews that have been done with veterans decades ago or their, their earlier writings? Do things come out now that weren't in the kind of memories that were shared decades ago? Certainly in oral history terms. That, that's one of the virtues of life story work. You're there with the person and you do have the opportunity to ask the questions. And, yeah, I think often there was quite a big emotional outpouring from these men and women who grew up in a, the era of the stiff upper lip but quite welcome the opportunity to reveal stories that have been sort of contained and perhaps repressed for many years. And you've interviewed so many fascinating people. Was there anyone in particular that stood out from all the interviews you've done? Jarrow Jim, the 93-year-old marathon runner from Jarrow, was a really fascinating uh, interview. 
he should have died, really, when he was a young boy of five. Uh, it was predicted that he only had weeks to live. He had an impoverished upbringing. He used to go around barefooted, but he made it through. And it was a kind of a survival of the fittest. And he's got a tenacious spirit. It's interesting that he remembers running to school barefooted in Jarrow in the winter in the 1920s and 30s and now he's running the same streets of, of Jarrow as a 93 year old in marathons he is a, a legend in the northeast and I really admire and respect him I mean he, he's he served in the Royal Engineers he came to Bristol in the Blitz and his job with the the engineers was to clear up the damaged city. He's got one wonderful story of they came across safes with lots of money in and they gave it to the poor of homeless of Bristol, which is sort of emblematic of the kind of person that Jim is. He was captured in 1941, prisoner of war in Czechoslovakia and Germany for some years, and he spent his time trying to sabotage the mines, which he did successfully, was punished for it, but that was his tenacious spirit to the end what are the risks when you're interviewing somebody about events that were so long ago about you know in terms of the accuracy of their memories and whether they're really recollecting things as they actually were or, or does that really matter I think it does matter you don't want to record a myth as fact but I think if you are a good interviewer you can get the truth. I, f I feel like I know when I'm getting the real thing, and that's what I want. I want the raw emotion. I want the surprising story that hasn't been told before. I want the story that nobody could really make up. You can tell when you're getting the real thing. And were there any of the people that really surprised you or confounded your expectations of them from what you thought they would be like and what they actually were like? Yeah, a lot of them did. One was a very middle class, some people would say posh lady called Eileen Younghusband, who served in the war. I filmed with her a lot. And what moved me most of all was she'd lost her husband very early on. She took an open university degree in her 80s, got top marks for it. Uh, uh, but then what we filmed her doing, and I had no idea that veterans did this, was helping soldiers today with post-traumatic stress overcome their problem by talking about her war story and sharing war stories with them. And we filmed this happening in Penarth, where she lives, along with another veteran of the RAF. And it was just amazing to behold someone in their mid-90s trying to help men in their 20s and 30s recover from post-traumatic stress today. I had no idea that that was happening. So this is incredible. Most people at any age couldn't do that, and to do it in your I know, your that's 90s. why I think so many of them, and I've been filming them over the past several weeks today in documentary sequences. So many of them are absolutely amazing and inspirational in old age, and they're showing the same tenacious spirit, I feel, that helped win the war. You just, you just mentioned Eileen there, so clearly most of the fighting in the war was done by men, but you've also interviewed quite a few women for the series. Are their views of the Second World War different from the men, or do they kind of have a, a common code? I think there's a common bond between the men and women. I didn't see any great difference. Just a, a desire to do their bit, whatever it was. For example, we filmed some women in Sheffield who worked in the Sheffield steel industry, uh, did an incredibly important job helping to build submarines, very important in the war effort. They had the same feeling as the men. They were doing men's work. They were pleased to do it. But no, I think amongst that generation, there is no big division between men and women in terms of what they did and today. There's a real bond of unity, uh, of a kind of a, a shared moment in their lives that was incredibly important. The series has been called The Greatest Generation. 
do you get the feeling that the people who interviewed themselves felt that they were the greatest generation or would they be too humble to think that? No, they're much too humble <laughs> to think it and deny it and they're sometimes a bit embarrassed when I tell them that I think they are. But I believe that they are. I think they achieve something amazing, which was to, to win the war for democracy. The world would be a very different place if they hadn't done what they did and I think we owe them a huge debt for their courage and self-sacrifice. Are they excited now that they're going to be on TV? Because I suppose some, for some of these people, this is they're becoming TV stars in their mid-90s. How do they feel about that? I think they're quietly very proud, but a bit nervous about how they will appear. But I'm hoping that they will be pleased with what they see and that they will be honoured by it. And you mentioned earlier that you're kind of work in an archive for of some of these um, World War II veterans. What's the plan of what will happen to all these interviews in the long run? I don't know. I've already got one of the biggest life story archives in Britain uh, with many hundreds of film stories, not just from veterans of the two world wars, but every aspect of social life in Britain. And um, I'm thinking what to do with it but it's going to end up somewhere. I don't know where. And just one last question, Steve. We may well have listeners out there who, who themselves served in the Second World War or certainly who have parents who are still alive who were veterans. I mean, clearly you've now finished the series, but is there any way that they can get their stories told or is, is there something they should do to record their memories? I think they should definitely try to record their stories perhaps with family members who can film them. Uh, uh, one of the things we're trying to do as part of this project is to encourage these stories to be filmed, particularly by the youngest generation. We're going into junior schools uh, uh, and teaching them to film their great-grandparents, which is something that's happening at the moment all over Britain. But any family member can do it. We've written a book with the series which has got advice on how to film your older relatives. There's some simple rules. Anybody can do it. So I think that is a wonderful thing to do. That was Steve Humphreys. Britain's Greatest Generation begins tomorrow night, the 8th of May, on BBC Two at 9pm. And Steve has also co-written a book with Sue Elliott about the series. That too is called Britain's Greatest Generation and is out now in the UK, published by Random House. And in the United States, it is available for the Kindle. And as I mentioned before, Steve has written a piece about the wartime generation for our May issue, which is on sale now. Also in this edition, you'll find articles on the English Civil War, the sinking of the Lusitania, and the history of slave ownership, among other things. You can get hold of our May issue now in all good news agents and digitally. Now, regular listeners or readers will know that we run an ongoing series called Our First World War that charts the history of the conflict through the voices of those who were there. We've now come to May 1915, and here, in an interview with the Imperial War Museum, is Private George Ashurst describing a gas attack in Belgium. Somebody said, it's gas. No sooner had he said that than somebody shouts, it's coming over here too, you know. It's coming over here. Well, we've not been on the rise, we didn't know, you see. It was the front trench lads that shouted, gas, and they <laughs> ran away. They were jumping over the top of their heads, these lads out of the front trench. You know, they were running, hopping it, out of gas, and jumping across our trench altogether, over our heads, and running away towards Ypres. Did that happen immediately, the gas was spotted? Yes. Yes, it must have done the way they come. Because it doesn't take it long to come across with the wind, you know. Come floating across. And, uh, well, everybody was grabbing their handkerchiefs, you know, coughing and spitting by then. And uh, one or two attempt to get up the back of the trench and the officer was there, get back, you know, with his revolver. Get back, you. Stand to. Did you well, try and do anything with your flannelette and elastic bands? Never, never troubled about it. It's still there to this day, for all I know. At the bottom of my big pack on my back. Bottom of that. And uh, 
was never touched or used. And, uh, well, no soon as he stopped a fella getting out of the trench there while he was doing that. A fella was nipping out of here on, on the back, running away. And uh, What did the gas... I hadn't run away up to then. What did the gas look like when it first came over? Oh, it looked like a brownish-green stuff coming. How thick was it? Oh, it wasn't too thick. No, no. I wouldn't say it was too thick. Like, it wasn't exactly, you know, like a fog. But it was there, and it was, it was thin, you know, but it wasn't a fog. You could see, I mean, you could see through it. What was your first impression when you first... Well, my somewhere? first impression was that we'd had it. We all thought we'd had it. If we got breathing it, we thought, well, we've had it. Bloody poison now, we are... You, you know. thought it was instant, or...? Yes, we didn't know no different. We thought it might kill you a few minutes after. You didn't know no different, you see. Anyway, we had to breathe it, it was there, and we, it had to go in our lungs. Also in May 1915, the Battle of Gallipoli was raging in what is now Turkey. Let's hear from Lieutenant George Horridge about his experiences in the battle. There were a few uh, hisses of bullets occasionally, and as we further went on, these got more and more, uh, and we came to a trench, which we got into, and then we got out of that trench and advanced still further, and the uh, amount of uh, rifle fire we were under seemed to get bigger, better, seemed to get bigger still, and I began to lose control of my platoon because I simply couldn't see them in the scrub. All I could do was to blow my whistle uh, and we would advance along with a line in front of them when they advanced and I hoped that they were doing, the, uh, the NCOs were doing their job and so on. And eventually uh, we got into the one trench behind the front line trench and uh, next to me was a, an old soldier in my platoon called Collinson and, uh, and I, by this time he got so mixed up with the other battalions that I just didn't know and I just had to give the order number three platoon will advance and I got out of the trench, Collinson got out of the trench and we had to go at the double because the fire was very heavy then the bullets were hissing around like twist, 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 like that. And uh, we ran about halfway to the trench and there was a mound. We got behind this. And then, after a minute or so of rest, I said to Collinson, look, we've got to go on. And so we shut off again. And um, I wasn't too bad a runner. I outstripped Collinson. And... Uh, eventually leapt into the front-line trench. And I'm sorry to tell you that Collinson, in the last ten yards, got hit through either the chest or the stomach, I forget, can't remember which. And we got him in, but he died later. That was George Horridge. You can continue to follow our First World War each month in BBC History magazine. Well, that's pretty much it for this week, but please do join us next time when we will have our annual Wolfson History Prize special. And just to let you know, that episode will be released a day later than usual on Friday the 15th of May. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast.